Does it? Okay. Just right. Psalm 2. All the Psalms are written from the perspective of the king. Now David wrote the largest, well, he wrote about half of them that we know for sure. And all the others that wrote, uh, you'll read like Korah wrote a, wrote a psalm and you'll read those things, but they all are written from a perspective of, of the king, per- perspective of David. Um, and that, therefore the psalms speak of Jesus because as the king represents the people in the psalms, so Jesus represents us before the throne of grace when he prays. We enter into the Psalms through Christ, through the King. We may never experience something like Psalm 22 where we, you know, we can see all of our bones and all of that, you know, uh, our tongues are dry. and We may never experience that kind of torment, but it doesn't matter. Christ experienced that kind of torment. And what that tells us is that whatever kind of torment we may experience, the psalm is for us. The psalm is for us. And, and, it, and, the, and to pray that psalm is to pray in the words of Christ for whatever the struggles we have, whatever they are in our lives. We need to remember all the time that Christ ever lives to intercede for us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, from the very very earliest commentators in the church, and even some of the Jews, Psalm 1 and 2 were understood to be the entry into the Psalter. In other words, in, they were considered to be the introduction to the Psalms. And uh, in some ancient texts, there was no division between Psalm 1 and 2. They just You just read started Psalm 1, and you read through to Psalm 2. Now as you look at Psalm 1 and 2, you can see that the structure of the psalms uh, really do tie those two psalms together. So, in Psalm 1, we begin with the word, How blessed is the man. In Psalm 2, we end with the words, How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Um, Psalm 1 begins with the way. Now, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly uh, or of the wicked, nor stand in the path or the way of sinners. Uh, Psalm 2 ends. Um, Do homage to the Son, that that He not become angry, and you perish in what? The way. The word way occurs in chapter 1, verse 6 as well. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what you have is two psalms that are connected by what you call an inclusio. And verse 6 of chapter 1 is like a hinge um, between them. And so they have always, or at least since early times, the psalms have been understood. Those two psalms have been understood as being um, together. Why would we want to think about some of that? Well, when you think about the psalm being an expression of the king's, 
and you read verse 2 of chapter 1, or Psalm 1, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, that should remind you of what God requires of his king. And uh, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, God said to the people of Israel about the king, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the king was to have the word, to write out the word of God with the approval of the Levitical priests. That is, they would compare what the king wrote with what they had and made sure that he had the law down as was written. We also read about a historical moment when that happened with Solomon. Though it doesn't say that, I want you to listen to 2 Kings 11 verse 12. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that is Solomon, um, he... Oh, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. Then... He brought out the king's son, that is Solomon, and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. That was spoken of Solomon. The testimony that is written in there, the word, is a reference back to the law. So they presented Solomon with with a copy or a copy of the testimony. They gave it to him. What was he supposed to do with it? Deuteronomy. You're supposed to write it out. So it should not surprise us then that Psalm 1 and 2 uh, were connected both textually and in the early church. Now last week we looked at Psalm 1. This week we want to look at Psalm 2. I want to hear this as the word of the Lord. This is Holy Scripture. I know um, we believe that, but we need, to ha- we need to constantly hold this before our eyes that this is Holy Scripture. Let's receive it as such. Now, the translation I'm going to read comes from uh, Bruce Watke, and uh, I'll explain some parts when I get to it, but I really loved his translation of this. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers band together against I am. What is I am? And against his anointed. I am is the name of God. In the Old Testament, the word Jehovah isn't Jehovah. The word Yahweh is I am. Actually, it's, yeah, it's I am. And in the Greek, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it reads Haon. That's the one who exists. I am. When Jesus said, I am, he used the Greek phrase, Egoimi. I am. That's why, that's why people got mad at him. He was declaring the name of God and he was applying it to himself. 
So Dr. Waki translates, and the rulers band together against I am and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The sovereign scoffs at them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and in his wrath he terrifies them. And he says, I install my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree. I am said to me, you are my son. Today I give you birth or today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possessions. Break them with a rod of iron. Notice that it isn't, it's break them, it's a command. Break them with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel, dash them to pieces. Therefore, kings be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve I am with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, lest he become angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath will soon flare up. Now he translates it fortunate, but I never do like that. How fortunate are all those who seek refuge in him. I, I still prefer the word blessed. How blessed are those who seek refuge in them. Well, we want to look at these, um, these, uh, this, this, this chapter. And uh, we're going to look at this psalm as one might look at the acts and scenes in a play or a movie. Act 1 takes place on earth where we hear mankind. Acts 2 switches the scene to heaven and we hear God respond. And there are three scenes in Act 2. And then in Act 3 we hear a message from heaven. So before we consider that, let's, let's pray. God of grace and God of wonder, fill our hearts with the desire to know You. Give to us a spirit of joy and gratitude for the word that we consider today. May we receive it for what it truly is, Your holy, infallible word. Amen. Act 1. Why are the nations in an uproar? Or why do they rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? Well, why do they do that? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against, against the Lord, against Yahweh, against I Am and, and His anointed. And they say, let us tear their bands apart. Let us cast their, their cords from us. Um, they want freedom from God's law. They look at what God does and they say, I don't like these restrictions. They say, we want to run our own world. They're like the people in, in early Babel. You know, they wanted to build a tower to reach heaven. Why? Because they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's what the text says. Everybody's always trying to make a name for themselves. That's not anything new today. This, we think, oh, wow, this is just happening today. People are getting worse. No, no, they're not. They're just like they've always been. Yeah. It's always been people from other places wanting to conquer other people and, and, and put them under their dominion. And it's always their law that they want to enforce. But no one wants to wants to live under the rule of the living God. Amen. They just don't want to. Amen. 
Now I want you to notice the breadth of this rebellion. It's nations and peoples. Uh, we call the people groups from the we could call it this uh, the people groups from the smallest to the largest. I reverse it. Should be from the largest to the smallest. It's uh, the Gentiles, Goyim. The, the scope of the rebellion is universal and global. Who, who is a Gentile? A Gentile is anyone who is not in a covenant relationship with the living God. That's what a Gentile is. Anybody outside of Israel was a Gentile. It didn't, it didn't matter what color their skin was. It didn't matter where they, what, what country they came from. If now they could become converts and then they wouldn't be Gentiles anymore. They could become proselytes. But but if you were not part of Israel, if you were not in covenant with God, you were a Gentile. Now who's David talking about here? Is he just talking about the people across the river from on the Jordan, or is just talking people north up in uh, what we call Asia or Asia Minor, Minor, which is Turkey now? Is that who he's talking about? No. When he says Gentiles, it's a very general statement. It's just Gentiles, whoever they are. Any people group that is not in covenant with God. Now, peoples that you see there, and the peoples imagine a vain thing, or they devise a main thing. They get together and they... they uh, you know, they get together in a council, or they get together as a as a group and discuss how we could get rid of get rid of these shackles. Um, uh, those people, who are they? Well, it's parallel to the Gentiles. It's just that one is broader in scope than the other. That's why I say people from all over, whether they're large large group of people or a small group of people, they are people all over the world, and they are against the Lord. And what are they saying? Let us tear their fitters apart and cast away their cords. We want nothing to do with them. Well, David is representative king as he writes the psalm. He's representative of his people. Kings represent their subjects. That's just what happens. It's just like today. Are you in Washington, D.C.? No. Yes, you are. Because your representative is there. He represents you. Yes, he does. Whether you look, I didn't ask you if you liked it. I just said, I just said he represents you. Are you in the White House? Yes, because you have a president, and he represents you. Now, there are some people in the world that don't like Americans. I should say people from the United States of America. Because Mexico is America, and South America is America, and, and Canada is America, so we're America. We're United States of America. People, when they, if you travel around, if you travel in, uh, in uh, you know, in like Europe, you'll meet people and they'll say to you, "Are you? Are you? Where are you from?" And you say, "I'm from the United States of America." And the, I had a guy actually tell me this on an airplane. He said, "Where are you from?" I said, "United States of America." And he goes, "Yep." Nobody's perfect. And then him and his wife left that role. Now, now maybe, maybe they weren't leaving it because I was an American, but they were. He was kind of rude to me. Why? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, because what's represented, what's represented to these people by our leaders, and sometimes by other people, but by people who have, what do we say, clout? They represent us. In fact, when you go to other parts of the world, you represent America. When I was in Mexico the last time, we went to uh, dinner at um, this restaurant on the... Uh, they changed all of... They changed this road in Juarez. I remember when I was a kid being on that road and, and it was really different. They changed it into this great big mall. You can't drive on there. You know, and, and everybody's out on the street. You know, they got the restaurants. and Everybody's really... It's really nice and friendly. There's everybody happy. So up walks this guy. He's from America. He just got deported. And he says... He, he says to... He says to... Um, uh, to me, I think it was, he said that he got some money that I could buy a burrito. And, and I thought, well, yeah, I guess. You know, how much did you need? And, and then uh, Esteban started talking to him. So I think Esteban gave him enough to get a burrito. And then we're walking away, and Esteban says to me, he said, you know why he stopped us? Because he knew you were Americans. <laughs> and I said, why, why do you think that? And he goes, they would never stop me. Mm-hmm. He said, you notice he talked to you. He said, they would never stop me because we wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything. He said, he knew you were Americans and he knew that you would be willing to give. And I said, well, okay, that's good. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that a good thing to do? Sure. We represent our country, but our leaders really represent us around the world. We may not like that, but that's the way it is. And so the kings, when they gather together, it's not just them. You notice? The nations are in an uproar. The people's divine a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel. They lead their people in this uh, rebellion. In uh, Psalm 10, we, 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 read, we read these words about people who reject the Lord. Uh, and I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but Psalm 10, verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the, in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That's, Psalm goes on talking about these people and what they're like. And it's reminiscent of Romans chapter, chapter 3, is it not? When we read Paul quotes from a psalm, he says, uh, What then? Are we any better than they? That he's just talking about Jews. Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why Paul concludes in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that's what they're doing. Scene one, on the earth, people rebelling against the rule of God. Scene two, or act two, I should say. Act two is in heaven. And scene one we have the sovereign God responding in what? Concern? Is he biting his nails? Going, oh no, what's going to happen now? No. He responds with laughter. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. The Lord God is indignant. And He is indignant, but He's also laughing. It's like He's laughing and he's and it's, a, it's an anger laughter. Like, <laughs> something like that, I guess, you know. What do you think you are? <laughs> so God is sitting up there. He's not worried about these these people. Amen. He's not concerned that they're going to do anything that's outside of his sovereign control. He's not concerned that they're going to actually throw him off. They may throw off what they think are shackles, right? They may throw off those things, but there's no way they're going to throw the living God off. There's no way they're going to say, ah, there, there's no more God. They can say all they want in their hearts that there is no God, but that doesn't change the fact that there's, that there's a God. They might not believe in Him, but He believes in them. He knows them. And so God scoffs at them. He laughs at them. But the second scene is a description of his indignation. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his glory or in his fury. Notice that. God is angry with those who rebel against him. God has fury. Now, I know some people, uh, uh, the idea that God is impassable, that He doesn't have emotions. or that's not, it's, that's not what impassable means. It means that God is not controlled by those things. God controls them. God controls His anger. He doesn't just fly off the handle, right? When you get angry, what do you do? I, just, I don't know about you, but I, I just fly off the handle and I'm not even in control. God when he's angry, is controlling his anger and it's directed toward certain issues, certain people. When he's furious, it's just describing his wrath. He's not going to tolerate this because it's wrong. But the fury and the wrath are not controlling him. He's controlling them. That's the difference. It isn't that God doesn't sense or I don't know how to say God feels anger. I'm not even sure what any of that means, but I do know that God does have anger. He's not this God that people present in our world today. Oh, God is love. God loves everybody. 
you know, God does love people. That, you know, that's why He sent His Son to die on the cross. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have the other side, which is anger and wrath. He does. When He He loves people, but that doesn't mean He's just going to, you know, say, "Oh, hey, everything's okay. Let's let's all get along." That you know, it's uh, God is not that way. He, he's He gets angry. He's angry at those who rebel against him. Well, then he indicates his indignation when he makes the statement, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, God chose a mountain, and I'm referring to some notes from Dr. Waki. Um, God chose a mountain because in the, in the ancient world, mountains symbolized uh, the victory of the local deity, right? So God accommodates that way, and He chooses a mountain. And He's on that mountain, but it's not just a mountain, it's a holy mountain. Zion is set apart as God's possession, His use. That's what makes it holy. It's just like when Moses went to the burning bush, God says, remove your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy. The ground wasn't holy in and of itself. There was no traits about the ground that made it holy. It was holy because of God's presence there. Amen. So God uh, locates His king on his holy mountain which is which is Zion it's going to be it's going to unfold as you go through the bible as the new jerusalem and that's where we stand the new jerusalem and zion they're interchangeable concepts and where do we stand as christians we stand we stand with the saints of old in the in you know we come to the new jerusalem with, with uh, the writer of Hebrews describes it, you know, there's myriads of, of angels and myriads of, of righteous men, uh, righteous people, you know, um, what is it, righteous people, people glorified or something like that in Hebrews chapter, chapter 12. That's where we've come. God is talking about that place. Ultimately, that's where all of this heads. So God speaks. He's indignant as He says to them. I've, 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 I've uh, chosen my king. I've installed him on my holy mountain. And then the Son speaks. And I want you to notice something though. In verse 6 you have Yahweh or I Am or Jehovah, um, the Lord, speaking in verses um, 5 and 6. But there's no transition from the Lord speaking to the Son speaking or the King speaking. And so that's why when the early church went through all of this, they saw in this Christ. It's like I think I think uh, Micah said this morning that Psalm is full of Christ. Yes, it is. We can't miss it. Amen. 
And he says, I will surely, the son as he speaks, I will surely declare God's decree. Now, the word decree indicates something that's scratched or cut, thus indicating something permanent. And it's related to the notion of a covenant. Because when you make a covenant, you cut a covenant. The covenant that God made with David came about when David desired to build the temple for God. You remember that? You recall when David determined to build God a house that Nathan the prophet encouraged him to do so. But then the Lord sent Nathan to David with this message. 2 Samuel 7, 10-17 When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Who is that? Well, it begins with Solomon and it just keeps going and going until you come to Christ. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. So when the psalmist says, I'm going to tell you about the decree, I think he's talking about the covenant that God made with David that ultimately comes to Jesus Christ, who establishes the new covenant. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's the, the cup of the covenant in His blood. The point of the psalm, however, is that the decree declared that the king was God's son. Now, that idea of sonship is understood three ways, in a religious way, in an adoption way, and in a natural way. So when speaking about sonship in Scripture, the religious and the adoptive overlap. So I just want to distinguish two ways. In the Scripture, you have people who are sons of God, because they are religiously related to him, and you have people, you have someone who's a son of God that's natural, which is Christ and only Christ. In the religious sense, people are sons or children of God, meaning that they sustain a special relationship to God. We might call it a covenantal relationship with God. It's a kind of a kinship, but not literally, spiritually it is. For example, God called Israel his son. When they committed idolatry in the wilderness, God said of them in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 17 and 18, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you or the rock that begot you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So Israel was God's son. When he revealed himself to Isaiah, God said in chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Jeremiah, the same thing. God challenged Judah's idolatry with these words. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. 
They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. You can't imagine how funny that looked. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are, are your gods. They forgot the God who gave them birth. Well, we're children of God too. Paul tells us that in Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We are the children of God. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. So, the word son is applied um, in, in that sense to, to people who are, who are Christians and those who were faithful Jews in the Old Testament. People who are in covenant relationship with God are the children of God. But Jesus is different. Now, the apostles applied Psalm 2, as we read this morning, um, to Jesus as his resurrection. Um, uh, when Paul was preaching in Acts 13, uh, he said um, um, that they preached the good news that God had promised to the fathers, and this he has fulfilled to us and their children by raising Jesus from the dead, also as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so, the fact of the resurrection, he raised him from the dead. He's no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. So, the son is declared son by the resurrection. We read that also in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Paul says he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Psalm 2 applies to that that idea of the resurrection of the dead. But in what sense does the resurrection declare Christ to be the Son of God in a manner different from any of us? How does it declare that He's the Son of God in a manner different from us? This is what the church has wrestled with for all of her years. This is why we had heresies who said that Christ wasn't truly God. He's the Son of God like anybody else is the Son of God. That's, that's what people have said. But the writer of Hebrews, as he talks about Jesus the Son, he does so in a way that, that he connects Psalm chapter 2 with his exposition of the person of Christ. If you'll look at Hebrews chapter 1, the writer does quote 
Psalm 2. But look at his exegesis in the first part of chapter 1. He says in verse 1, after God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in Son. You could scratch the word His, it's not there. Son is being emphasized, it's being pointed out that this Son is, the quality of this Son is different. And He appointed Him heir of all things. Now listen to what He says of Son. Verse 3. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. That's the Son. He upholds all things by the word of His power. That's not some creature. And so when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And therefore, he's better than the angels. Verse 4. And then he goes, the, the writer of Hebrews goes down. He says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Quote from Psalm 2. He also applies Psalm 2 to Christ's high priestly, uh, the fact that Christ is a priest. He says in Chapter 5, verses 4 to 6, that no one takes the honor for himself, that is to be a priest, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, Psalm 2, You are my son, this day I have begotten you. And so the psalm is applied in those various ways to the son, pointing out that he is not just a son like you or I are children of God. Rather, he is son in a unique way. He's son in a natural way. He's son in that he shares the very essence of the living God. He and the Father and the Spirit are one God. And so the writer of Hebrews indicates that Christ is by nature the Son of God. By nature. Well, then the last part of Psalm 2, we read the fathers, that the Father forewarns. He says in Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. This is the last act. You hear this voice from heaven. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Now notice the, notice the similarities of terms. You've got, you got rulers, you've got kings, you've got judges. Right? What are those? What are those? Those are all offices, are they not? Those are all offices. Kings, rulers, judges. I'm warning all of you. And why does he warn them and not everybody else? Because they represent the people. Just like David represented the people, so they represent their people. Take this warning. Take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Worship the Lord with reverence. Reverence and awe is the way we should approach our God. And um, and that's something that we seek to do as a congregation. To approach God with reverence and awe. 
do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may be soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. The Father forewarns the rulers of the earth, the judges of the earth, the people of the earth. Come to Christ. That's the bottom line. Come to Christ. That's the warning I hope we all hear. That's the warning I hope people outside these walls hear. However they may hear because they must come to Christ. Well, in conclusion, I want to say we live in trying times, do we not? Things are changing for the worse. We do not know what will be. Will we suffer as Christians like our brothers and sisters around the world? Well, I don't know. What I do know is this. No matter what happens, our times are in God's hands. This world does not belong to mankind. This world is God's world. He created it for His glory. He sits in heaven right now and laughs at the rebellion of man. We don't see that. But that's what the psalm is encouraging us to see. By faith. Our Lord Jesus sits on the throne of His Father and is presently subduing all His and our enemies. 1 Corinthians 15. So you ought never to worry about what may or may not happen. God rules. Christ reigns. And the Holy Spirit subdues the hearts of people through the preaching of the Gospel. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get involved in things. That, that's not what I mean. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't vote. You know, I don't believe in that. Um, it, uh, that's, not the, that's not the point. The point is to not fret about what happens. Do your civic duty and rest in the Lord. Amen. Rest in Him. We need to fix our hope in this. As John the Apostle has written, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be is not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Let's pray. I want to pray with the prayer of Peter Martyr of Vermigli who exposited this psalm and wrote this prayer based on Psalm 2. Let's pray together. Regardless of how much the devil rages, great and good God, or the worldly powers rise up daily, or the flesh conspires with its slaves against the kingdom of Your begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, still we know and hold firmly as part of our steadfast faith that You mock and scorn all such things. You who are mighty to crush them in Your wrath and anger as soon as it pleases You. Since we are sometimes weak in our faith so that driven by various fears we obey Your commandments less than we ought, we beseech You that in Your goodness You show us Your favor so that we may be firmly convinced that Your Son is our King and Redeemer and holds complete power at Your side over all things. 
When you begot him, you handed over all the nations for him to rule rightfully as his heritage. Grant us now finally to realize that and to learn it as so well. By serving you with all fear and honor, we may not be smashed on the last day like a clay pot by the rod of your anger. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Will you please, I don't know what him. <laughs> Turn to him. I forgot. Psalm 31C. Psalm 31C.